Hi again. I'm David Wilson, the editor and the publisher of the United Church Observer. And you're listening to another episode of the Observer podcast. It's produced by members of the magazine's editorial department. And in each episode, we bring you some of the best stories and interviews from the magazine, as well as insights from our contributors. For the next little while, we'll hear from writer and author David Giuliano. But first, I'd like to share one of my recent observations with you. There was an unwritten rule at the small Ontario university I attended in the 1970s. It stipulated that there would be a crisis, a strike, a faculty shakeup, a student union scandal, every February. In 1974, the February crisis at Trent University came a month early. It was sparked by a public affairs show called Under Attack, which made the rounds of university campuses. It pitted students against high-profile, often controversial guests. The producers had chosen our campus in Peterborough, Ontario, for an episode featuring Jesse B. Stoner, a rabid white supremacist and anti-Semitic lawyer from the state of Georgia. Stoner was so extreme that even his local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan had expelled him decades earlier. For a brief period, he served on the appeal team of James Earl Ray, the convicted assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. No one knew it at the time, but Stoner had also been involved in a 1958 bombing of a Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama. All hell broke loose when word came in January of Stoner's looming visit. Leftist students argued that the university was not a soapbox for bigots or fascists. Moderates squirmed, insisting that free speech was free speech. It applied to everyone. Let the man speak, they said. He's so repugnant, he'll condemn himself. Passions reached a fever pitch as the date for the taping drew closer. I was reminded of the stoner crisis as I read Justin Dallaire's recent Observer story about free speech clashes on university campuses. The questions at the core of these confrontations are essentially the same as those that fueled the debate at Trent more than 40 years ago. What do we really mean by freedom of speech? Is everyone entitled to it? If not, who decides what's acceptable? On what grounds? Dallaire's story suggests that today's campus dust-ups are overtly ideological. Right-wing groups complain they're systematically muzzled by liberals. Liberals claim that the aggrieved cries of right-wingers mask an agenda that threatens minorities, the marginalized, and the vulnerable. The tone has grown increasingly hostile. I can't help but wonder whether some of it is spillover from the tribalism that plagued social media. Debates about free speech get messy because the term itself is problematic. It invites all sorts of self-serving interpretations. As Canadians, we enjoy a commendable amount of freedom to express ourselves. But no one is completely unfettered. The Criminal Code, the Human Rights Act, and libel laws place clear limits on what we can say. In fact, a lengthy interview with Jesse Stoner published in the student newspaper during the crisis at Trent 40 years ago would likely find the editors facing hate crime charges today. We routinely censor ourselves when we observe informal conventions of good taste and propriety. It's disingenuous to claim that freedom of speech means anything goes. But it's just as disingenuous to pretend that making universities safe spaces isn't also a desire to impose more limits on expression than already exist under the law. 
Both extremes are slippery slopes. There's a lesson for today in how the stoner crisis at Trent University was resolved. Neither left nor right prevailed. Rather, the university administration saw a teachable moment amid the uproar. Trent had been founded just 10 years earlier on ideals of old-school civility and modern community. The TV show coming to campus was, by its very nature, adversarial and divisive. In short, it was inconsistent with the university's values. It had been a mistake to consider hosting the show in the first place. So the university president rescinded the invitation, and his action carried an implicit message for everyone. Free speech is as much of a privilege as it is a right. It demands civility and goodwill. Without those virtues, it's just noise. Very Reverend David Giuliano is a former moderator of the United Church of Canada. The return of a tumor in 2015 made Giuliano an involuntary pilgrim, setting him on a path he calls his Camino to Cancer. Here he reads an excerpt from his 2016 blog series of the same name. It was republished in The Observer in November. There are many pilgrim destinations, Mecca, Lourdes, and Graceland, to name just a few. Among the most well-known is the Camino de Santiago. The most popular route begins in France and, by various paths, leads to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in Spain where the bones of St. James are reputed to be buried. People walk it for all sorts of reasons. Some go for the physical challenge. Others go looking for community among fellow travelers. Still others seek healing, wisdom, or spiritual meaning. Camino means simply the way, the road. Not all pilgrimages are geographical, though. Some are made almost invisibly in our inner lives. Matthew Fox, the former Dominican priest and founder of the Fox Institute for Creation Spirituality, describes four paths or ways of the spiritual journey. The Via Positiva is the way of ecstasy, joy, and delight. The Via Creativa is the way of creativity and co-creation. The Via Transformativa is a way of struggle for justice, healing, and compassion. The Via Negativa is the way of deepening spiritual life, discovered in struggle, suffering, and loss, the way of darkness, chaos, silence. The Via Negativa is rarely chosen or even welcome. It sneaks up and abducts us. We can choose to walk and listen or not. I've had cancer on and off for more than 20 years. Right now, my cancer is in remission. I'm feeling strong, healthy, and happy. Cancer has been both the source of suffering and a harsh teacher of wisdom. It has been unwelcome and it has been a blessing. It comes banging on the door of my soul like a hostile stranger, an unwelcome guest. I've tried to redeem its malignant presence by walking with this stranger. Welcome to the Via Negativa. Welcome to the Camino to Cancer. My beloved, Pearl and I were still in our pajamas eating breakfast at home in Marathon, Ontario, when Eliorentia tapped on the window. Luna, his malmute, stood beside him on the deck. 
The northern summer of 2015 was drawing to a close, but the sun was still warm. Ellie and I sat side by side in the old Muskoka chairs facing the trees. Dew turned to vapor above the strawberry patch. The spruce trees stood motionless, undisturbed by the light breeze. Luna lay down, planting her chin on my moccasin. Ellie is a dear friend. He is also my doctor. I've got my doctor hat on this morning, he clarified. Okay, I said. The other night I was looking at that lump on your head, he told me. I don't like the look of it. We'd all been at a wedding on Saturday. Everyone at our table told uproarious stories about their respective weddings. We drank wine and danced and laughed our faces red. And evidently, Ellie was troubled by the lump on my forehead, the one above my left eye to the right of my temple, already disfigured by previous surgeries. Me neither, I said, but they say it's just scarring or a nerve bundle. I pressed the lump with the heel of my hand. It felt like a budding horn. Between Ellie's diagnosis and that of a million-dollar magnetic resonance imaging machine, I choose his, hands down. Besides, his doubts confirmed my own misgivings. Stoicism is my usual first response, my default go-to in fearful times. Denial and bargaining aren't my way. Instead, I surrendered. That's life. I do not offer this observation as prescriptive or with apology. It's just what I do. I sighed. Okay, what now? I'd like you to go back down to Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto. See the oncologist and the surgeon again. Check it out, just just to be sure. Just to be sure. But he knows already, and so do I. We sat on my deck silently, breathing the scent of strawberries, cedar, and spruce trees. The pungent smell of compost lifted on a warm huff of air. In the distance, a lawnmower barked to life. Ellie rested his hand on my forearm. I just feel better if we checked it out. Well, okay, I said, if that's what makes you feel better, we laughed. I don't recall Ellie and Luna leaving. My head was elsewhere. I took a deep lungful of air, blew it out, and went inside to tell Pearl. That's how it begins. One moment, it's breakfast and sunshine and strawberries, and the next... The Via Negativa comes knocking on the door of your soul. No need to go looking for it. It finds us. But for the light seeping in from the hallway, the hospital room is dark. It's the second day post-surgery. My body lays on the bed, dumb as clay, nauseated, aching, and stinking. Meanwhile, my mind is busy with mischief. Do I need more pain meds? Did I actually hear the nurse say that the guy in the next bed should be in isolation? How hairy will the flesh flap transplanted from my thigh to my forehead get? Will the titanium mesh create problems in airports? Am I having a stroke, a clot? Just wiggle your feet. What's my blood pressure? I need prunes. I could go on, and believe me, my brain did. I tried to calm my thoughts with a relaxation meditation, starting with my toes. I ended up starting at least five times, never getting past my knees before throwing in the contemplative towel. Then I remembered the Meditation for Beginners CD in Pearl's laptop. Squinting through my bulky eyelids, I found the audio player and the earbuds and booted up the CD. I scrunched the thin pillow beneath my head, ready to welcome the guidance of the mindfulness expert, John Kabat-Zinn. 
Pan flutes and chiming prayer bells flowed into my ears. Peacefulness descended like a flannel quilt. Mindfulness has to do with paying attention to things that we ordinarily don't pay attention to, began Sensi Kabat-Zinn. Ah, yes, take me there, John. Arrange to have some raisins on hand, he continued. Raisins? We're just going to take one of them and bring it up towards the face for closer inspection. A raisin? Just drinking it in through your eyes as if you'd never seen one of these things before and maybe even forgetting that it's called a raisin. I don't have a raisin. In the dark, I pat the table, feeling around for a substitute, maybe a cellophane packet of crackers. Who has a raisin just lying around waiting for Cabot zinn to tell them to drink it in? Oh, and newsflash, you can't drink a raisin in through your eyes, especially if your eyes are swollen shut. This is stupid. Cabot zinn continues... Noticing its surface features, its color, shape, as you turn it in your hand, seeing whether there are any unique features to it. The peaceful tone and cadence of his voice starts to grate on my nerves. I cross my arms across my chest, and the IV needle jabs into my wrist. The pain is strangely consoling. As I'm doing it, Cabot Zinn barrels ahead. I notice a little circular scarring at one end, which, of course, you'll know is the equivalent of our belly button. Oh, for the love of... I shift in the bed, setting off a fresh jolt of electric pain and nausea, and advance the CD to the next guided meditation, mindfulness of breathing. Good. I fold the stingy pillow in half and stuff it back under my neck. Let's take the same quality of attention we just brought to eating the raisin, Cabot zinn begins. Again with the raisins. I don't have an effing raisin, John. We have no raisins today, with or without belly buttons. I close the laptop, toss the earbuds onto the table, recross my arms over the fetid hospital gown, and savor a fresh stab to the wrist. Fortunately, It's not time for the nurse to check my vitals. My blood pressure would be through the roof. Sometimes, on the Camino de Cancer, it's difficult to be contemplative. And sometimes we just don't have any raisins to drink in with our eyes. Sometimes it's all we can do just to be present, where we are, accepting our fears and anxious minds. Maybe later, if we're lucky, we can even laugh at ourselves a little. I've started walking. Walking might be too grand a term for the shuffling, walker-assisted circuits I'm making around the head and neck ward. The scabbing incision, snaking 20 inches up from above my knee, flares with each step. The milking drain is safely pinned to the gown. The skin harvested from my thigh is sewed to my forehead, where the bone of my brow has been replaced with a titanium mesh. Rimmed by fine black sutures, the flesh flap looks like a large gob of ballooning lard. A drain dribbles blood and something else down the side of my face. Scabbed blood bulges on the bridge of my nose. My eyelid is swollen, closed like a fat, sated leech. On the post-surgical head and neck ward, my appearance is by no means extraordinary. I've started to think of the place as the little shop of horrors. We limp like zombies with slabs of pale flesh, harvested from our backs, legs or arms, sewn to our faces, necks and across the top of our heads. 
Our hair springs up around our wounds like sidewalk weeds. There's the persistent wheezing of the freshly tracheotomized and the wet suctioning of their windpipes. Good for you, Mr. Cuzo. You're doing fine, says the nurses. Look at that. Your discharge was all brown last night. Today it's foamy pink. You're doing great. Our wounds are likely no more gruesome than those on other surgical wards. But rather than being tucked demurely beneath hospital gowns, ours are on display in all their gory glory. We have become a community of sorts, familiar with one another's fleshly manifestations of pain, anxiety, and shame. We nod in passing and smile, if we still have jaws and lips with which to smile. Two mornings in a row, the man across the hall is dressed in anticipation of his discharge. He says his brother is on his way from Sarnia, Ontario, to pick him up. He doesn't know why his brother hasn't come. Some suffering is of the body and some is of the waiting heart. Down the hall, a young woman, her knuckled spine turned to the door, perches on the edge of her bed facing the window. The window admits a gray autumn light reflecting her misshapen features. An elderly Sri Lankan woman sits and waits beside her husband's bed. He has not regained consciousness since his surgery two days ago. Each time I pass, we give each other the thumbs up. She cannot speak English, and I cannot speak Sinhala or Tamil. A nurse makes his way around the ward this afternoon, poking his head into each room to announce, Blue Jays versus Rangers, big screen, 4 p.m. in the visitor's lounge. It's Game 5, Do or Die, the American League Divisional Series in the race for the 2015 World Series Championship. With little else on our schedules and hungry for a win of any sort, we balance our surgically rearranged heads and necks on our shoulders. We slip her down to the lounge, rearrange the vinyl and chrome chairs for optimum viewing. The Texas Rangers lead by one until the sixth inning, when the Toronto Blue Jays tie up the game. Then the Blue Jays score four times to the Rangers' one in the seventh and go on to win the game. The lounge erupts with feeble and wincing sounds of joy. I look around the room. The man waiting for his brother is there. The Sri Lankan woman, her thumb raised in my direction, is there too, along with the young woman with the slender back, her face turned for all to see. All of us united in suffering and in victory. The moment mystically elevates us, erases what seemed gruesome, ugly. What is revealed instead is our humanity, imperfect, vulnerable, and beautiful. It's as though a bright light is shining from each soul. It's been two years since my last Camino de Cancer, and I forget sometimes. Forget the bread and the juice, and how it quenches my deepest thirsts and hungers. Forget the beauty revealed by brokenness, Forget to live simply and slowly. Forget to notice the miracle of life, all of life. Forget kindness and gentleness, my own and others. Forget the mystical presence of Jesus in suffering. So it is good to flip through the photo album every now and then, or the journal you kept on the journey, 
Pin a map to the wall and trace the route traveled with your forefinger. Dim the lights and put on a slideshow for your friends. Revisit the stories and don't forget. No one chooses the Via Negativa, but sooner or later it shows up on everyone's doorstep. It's an unwelcome traveling companion bearing difficult gifts. David Giuliano is an award-winning writer and author of Postcards from the Valley, Encounters with Fear, Faith, and God. He lives in Marathon, Ontario. You've been listening to the Observer Podcast, which can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and at ucobserver.org, where you can find links to everything we talked about in this episode. Also, you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at UC underscore Observer. This podcast was recorded by David Wallen and produced by our digital content editor, Kevin Spurgaitis. Music was provided by Poddington Bear through the Free Music Archive and Grammy-winning composer Moby through Moby Gratis. And it's hosted by me, David Wilson. The Observer's print and online editions are put together every month by me, managing editor Jocelyn Bell, senior editor Kaylee Moore, assistant editor Elena Gretzen, senior writer Mike Milne, and art director Ross Wolford. We'd like to acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Periodical Fund of the Department of Canadian Heritage. Now that's it. We'll be back with another Observer podcast in the coming months. See you next time.